0: Hey, everybody. This is episode 35 of Artist Soapbox. Welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring Triangle Area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. Today, I'm talking with soprano Andrea Edith Moore whose performances have spanned the globe, from Teatro Colon de Buenos Aires to Munich and Hamburg and back home to her native North Carolina, where she is a regular principal artist with the North Carolina Opera. Ms. Moore is a prize winner in the Metropolitan Opera National Council Auditions and holds degrees from Yale University, the Peabody Conservatory of Music at the Johns Hopkins University, and University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Earlier this season, she made debuts with the North Carolina Hip Festival, Texas Performing Arts, and in the role of Sarah in the groundbreaking new opera, Cold Mountain, by Jennifer Higdon with North Carolina Opera. As you'll hear us discuss in this episode, this summer, Ms. Moore will take part as a fellow in the 8th Blackbird Creative Lab with the Grammy Award-winning ensemble. We also dig into the chamber opera... Family Secrets, Kith and Kin, a work that Ms. Moore commissioned, produced, and starred in, composed by Daniel Thomas Davis. I loved this conversation with Andrea about curating her career, creating new work, and celebrating the people of this place. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Tamara. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> so, Andrea, you have studied and performed and lived uh, across the country and even across the ocean. Mm-hmm. What is your connection to North Carolina? Well, I was born here. Um, a strong connection. <laughs> that's
1: a strong connection. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're. I have roots here. My um, parents uh, moved here after my dad finished med school, and he's been at Duke. A long, long time. And so my sisters and I were born here, and um, I grew up in Chapel Hill, a Duke fan in Chapel Hill. Wow. It was a little, you know, rough there sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> a bold
0: choice. <laughs> yeah.
1: But anyway, I um, have lived here and uh, was raised here and left for a long time, as you said, um, did various things throughout the journey, and then came back mm, about 10 years ago and have been really happy being back home.
0: Why did you come back to North Carolina and how how has it changed since you left?
1: Wow, it's changed a lot. Um well, for one thing, just certain roads that you would drive on um they're not country roads anymore. They have a lot of houses and a lot of development. And, uh, you know, I remember driving from Chapel Hill to Hillsboro and it just felt like an eternity because you were driving through this country and now it's so developed and it's still beautiful, but um, in just a different way, all the traffic and everything. But with that comes um, an artistic life that's possible. And uh, that's one of the major reasons why I came home because of course, my family was still here, and that's a big draw for me, um, really connected to them. But you can't just go home because if your family. If you're an artist, you have to have a place to do what you love to do. And so when I came back um, in about 2008, I uh, started teaching at UNC, Chapel Hill, which was really a wonderful coincidence that a colleague of mine happened to be going on maternity leave. And so right in 2008, when no one could get a job, I actually was hired to help out in that situation. And then some faculty changes happened and I stayed on for seven years, which was a wonderful experience. And it gave me some concrete reasons to be here again. And it fed the artistic fuel for a lot of uh, the projects and things that I do. So
0: a great reintroduction to the community and a nice way to have a a strong foundation Mm -hmm. uh, to to, to work from. So you said that you worked at UNC or you taught at UNC until Mm -hmm. about 2015. Yeah. And Then what have you been doing since then?
1: (laughs) Well, in 2015, I became a mom. And so that was the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I am very happy uh, being a mother. And I um, really felt that the balance of my work at the university and the time that I wanted to be with my son, they weren't coinciding in the same way that I thought that they could. And so I teach privately, and I also now have a lot more time for my own projects. Mm -hmm. The demands from a university are are demands that should be there. You need to be a lot more present for your students in terms of the really week-to-week and day-to-day presence. And with a private studio, of course, you're there week to week for your students. But um, because they're working on different goals, some people are very intensely working towards a singing goal. Some are just coming for a lesson now and then. And that kind of flexibility is really
0: great. So you have a very vibrant career and have had one for for years. I think that some people might wonder how you maintain that in North Carolina, which mm-hmm. At first glance, doesn't seem you know it's not New York, right? It's not. It's like a a, a big place. So, right. but it but when we were talking on the phone, you actually were talking about how many opportunities there are in North Carolina. How is that working?
1: Well, it's it's really great. I find that there are. Not only a lot of uh, classical singing groups, but, um, you know, I just sang a concert with a group called Sonam, Singers of New and Ancient Music. It's a really great uh, mixed voice choir directed by Alan Friedman, doing all kinds of projects for choral music for social justice. Also singing beautifully. And they hired me in just to do a project with them. And I sing with North Carolina Opera. There's the symphony. There are various choir groups. There is a lot. And as I said, that's one of the big changes from when I was younger. I don't remember there being as many groups. I was also being, you know, growing up and not necessarily seeking my professional venues. But when I came back in 2008, I was astounded Hmm. with how much was going on. And as a freelancer, I'm not managed. I personally manage my career. That's by choice. I really like picking the projects and things that I want to do, which is sometimes really hard and sometimes the best thing ever. Um, For me, mostly it's the best thing ever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But Yeah, I feel like it's this area is kind of like a little nugget in Austria. You know, you've got local scene. Everybody's really passionate about what they're doing. Whenever I'm with these groups, they are fully invested in, in their mission. And it's great to come in and kind of take part in bits and pieces with established groups. And then, you know, also do some projects of my own. I don't have my own band, my own group, my own thing, but I've done a lot of projects that were out of my own brainchild.
0: Let's talk about one of those in particular, Mm -hmm. a North Carolina project that's close to your heart, and Mm -hmm. that is Family Secrets, Kith and Kin, which is a dramatic song cycle mm-hmm. that you conceived and commissioned. It's composed by Daniel Thomas Davis with new texts written by seven nationally acclaimed Southern authors. So, the concert version of Family Secrets was performed in March of 2015, and the staged version was presented at Burning Coal Theater in February 2018 by the mm-hmm. North Carolina Opera.
1: Would you tell us a little bit about that project? Sure. It's hard to even say a little bit because it, it occupies and occupied and still occupies so much space in my world right now. But when I came home in 2008, I, I come home from Germany, and I was actually really homesick. I had a great experience in Germany, but it was one of the reasons why I came back. I needed to sort of re- calibrate, recharge my batteries. And when I came back, my parents had moved to Hillsboro. I grew up in Chapel Hill, but they had decided to go out there. And I started meeting all of these artists and writers. It was like an enclave of creativity. And I just thought, thank God, my parents moved out here. (laughs) This is really cool. Um, So I met Alan Greganis, and I met Lee Smith, who's just amazing. And and they're all amazing. I met Michael Malone, who subsequently became my godfather uh, when I finally was baptized and confirmed. All these great artists and writers, particularly. And one of the things that I love about singing is that you're inherently using words. You're you're singing either source material from novels or plays or art song is based in poetry and prose. It's um, composer's settings, um, not necessarily related to a large stage work, but you know a setting of a poem. So I thought, mm, goodness, wouldn't it be really cool to have? A piece that connects all of these writerly voices. So I started brewing that up and I had a composer in mind and This project was so rooted in a place because of Hillsboro that I wanted to use a North Carolina composer. My friend Daniel Thomas Davis is from Waxon, North Carolina, which is a small town, really cute outside of Charlotte. Mm. He and I went to Peabody Conservatory together, and he's— gone on and have has amazing works check in, check them out on his website which is danielthomasdavis.com he just had a world premiere yesterday he's on the scene but more than that he has a really uh great southern sound while still being you know probing and new and has um has a great hybrid of accessibility and newness and I love his work. So he and I set about um, setting these texts that I had assigned a prompt to the authors about family secrets. Family secrets. I don't know why. I just chose that theme because it's such a Pandora's box of uh, everybody's got a family
0: secret. It feels very rich.
1: Yeah, there's no end, right? right. <laughs> I can think of a few and um, <laughs> that weren't set to music, I'll say. <laughs> That's your right, is as the, as the person, is the vision caster you get to choose. <laughs> right. <laughs> but what I wanted to do was not make it too scattered. So I figured that if you have a lot of voices in the room, a room is the key. Where do these family secrets come from? So the prompt was not just a family secret, but each author was assigned a sort of space or a couple rooms so they could choose the family secret that's in the kitchen. Mm. Is that a recipe? Is it a uh, or family secret that's from the porch or the living room or the bedroom? So that kind of unified the space in which several voices could exist you know every house has a lot of voices in it mm-hmm. <laughs> and dan davis was the one that really bound all of that together through his score so we we had a huge stack of writing and actually dan was the one that started to distill it down because each author submitted two or three some Some submitted 140 poems, so or one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it was a lot to sort through and create a thread. So this project was really long. The timeline to get it to 2015 world premiere was about five years. Yes, Mm -hmm. that
0: seems right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was a, um, it's been an amazing journey creating something new like that. And one of the things that I want to keep doing is um, creating things that are about the people here. The premiere happened in 2015 with the support of the university and um, uh, also the Durham Arts Council and private funding, which was a whole other side of the endeavor of getting something done. For me, that was a great learning curve. I hadn't been on the production development side of things. Someone's always handed me a score and said, here, here's your music, learn it, sing Mm -hmm. it, do it, which is a, a lot. And if no one ever does anything different than that, a singer, then they're still amazing. But I love having learned that whole other side of bringing a project to birth, which kind of is one of the th- reasons why I'm. you're probably going to ask about the summer project that mm-hmm. I'm doing um, with 8th Blackbird, um, just continuing to learn about how to construct even more projects out of the resources that I have here at home. But do I create a group? Do I keep doing this sort of on my own? Um, those are some questions that I have for myself yes. <laughs> as I go on.
0: I want to circle back a little bit mm-hmm. to talking about the the history related to Family Secrets mm-hmm. because, well, I have several questions. So I'm co-facilitating a creative accountability group with a friend of mine, and it's a group of people who are working on a project, and the goal of the group is to move things forward bit by bit because I feel like there are lots of obstacles to making creative work, and as a, as a group, we're supporting each other in that creative growth. One of the books that I am using with this creative accountability group is called Playing Big by Tara Moore. Oh. And it's an amazing book. I highly recommend it. Cool. And this idea of what it means to play big is very individual. But I think that for artists, it's very easy for us to back away from big projects for a multitude of reasons Mm -hmm. you have you in 2008 Mm -hmm. came up with this idea for family secrets it took five years to have the first uh, concert version Mm -hmm. and then three years after that to have a staged version you had the idea you involved a multitude of people with big names you produced it. I mean, this is a huge project. Mm-hmm. How were you able to play big in this way? What carried you through? That's
1: a really great question. And first of all, that is awesome that you're doing that. <laughs> and um, and it is really hard to stay accountable to yourself and to keep a project going, I think if I had been a little less rogue about it and I, I probably could have gotten it done on a tighter timeline. But most of the points where things got stalled or the points where things moved forward were either from my own personal fear. As you said, you know, you just kind of can stop yourself from playing big because you're doubting yourself. you're, how am I going to get? You know, whatever the money is, Uh, in this case, it was a lot, Um, you know, several thousand dollars or tens of thousands of dollars to commission and to pay for a lot of different aspects of putting it together. That, to me, was one of the big, big daunting things. I knew I had the creative capital to do it, but I didn't know if I had the financial capital. And when you're looking at that kind of number, it's amazing right now, the social crowdsourcing platform, but it's also saturated. Yes. You know, we have a lot of competition. You know, my artistic vision, here it is. Well, there are 10,000 other projects that have really wonderful merit to their artistic visions as well. So how do you do that? So personally, I will say there were a lot of kind of yield signs and stop signs in the road. But at each point when I either got a new piece of writing from an author or one of the grants came through, here's a story. I remember being on my honeymoon, okay, this is 2013, so already all the writing had come in. I've been sorting through this, but it was the first big chunk of money that came through in a grant. And I found out on my honeymoon and I was sitting with my husband and I started to, I burst into tears. I was, and I can really feel it right now. I was so scared. Mm -hmm. I was like, now I have to do it. And that was a big turning point because, and my husband was so great and he's like, you know, but that's the best thing. You you can do it. You've been waiting for this, and now you you do. You have to take the bull by the horns and go for it. And that set things in motion. That gave me the fear factor but also the confidence to say, now I can do a crowdsourcing camp, uh, campaign because I have it backed yes. by a certain amount of other things. So sometimes it's it's this layering effect where you know now – that you can go forward because there's something behind it. Mm-hmm. And eventually I just, you know, really felt like the inertia came along. I did a crowdsourcing campaign. I really highly encourage artists who want to do something. Kickstarter is a great place, but if you've got some, a project like ours was um, with Family Secrets, we got fiscal sponsorship through the university, which helps with your fundraising because then people can write it off as a tax donation. Right. Although now we're not sure how that landscape is changing given the tax changes. Mm-hmm. I won't call them reforms. But <laughs> so playing big is a great phrase for it because every time that one of those turning points happened, it really felt like I was putting my hand down on the table and, ooh, you know, I felt very vulnerable. Yes, But it was incredibly rewarding. And you there are all kinds of cliches surrounding that that are true.
0: You know, you just have to you have to face your fears. Let's talk about the summer, because that seems like. Uh, an exciting risk yeah. that you are taking. You've been named a fellow for the Blackbird Creative Lab, which is a two-week immersive program in California where a group of fellows come together with the 8th Blackbird Ensemble and other faculty for an exploratory process of creating new work that culminates in performance. And for listeners who don't know, 8th Blackbird is a contemporary classical ensemble, and they're known for several things, but one of them is for innovative performance, and the other one is as advocates for new music by living composers. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to apply for this summer fellowship?
1: Well, it's as simple as this. I saw a post on Jennifer Higdon's Facebook page. And Jennifer Higdon, for those who don't know, um, is the composer of Cold Mountain, which is a novel by Charles Frazier. And she set the operatic version to music and is not only an opera composer, but uh, an instrumental orchestral you name it, composer. She is fantastic. And uh, I think her harp concerto is being performed this week. In any case, she was here when North Carolina Opera produced Cold Mountain in the fall of 2017. I played the role of Sarah in that production. And so I reached out to her and got to know her a little bit because she had actually coached Daniel Thomas Davis my composer for Family Secrets. So there's this interconnectivity and she's a down-to-earth, wonderful, generous person and very encouraging during the process for Cold Mountain. So to circle back around, she just posted this on her Facebook page and said, hey, the 8th Blackbird Creative Lab is is uh, taking applications for the fellowship. And I thought, hmm, well, I'm a little old. I don't think that there's probably an age limit. Because once you're somewhere in your 30s,
0: (laughs) you're way past your expiration date. (laughs) Well, each each year
1: it's like uh, bowling pins. You're like, oh, okay, not going to apply for that one. (laughs) And there was no age limit. And I thought, I still thought, oh, I'm too old. And I even said that to Jennifer. She said, no, no, no. I was there last year. Some fellows are young. Some fellows are older. It does not matter. It's ageless. I was there as a teacher. I learned so much. This is a completely organic, creative process. Um, You need to apply. You should. And another cliche, what do you have to lose, right? So I did it. I applied and I found out that I got My fellowship the day that Family Secrets uh, opened with North Carolina Opera this year. So it was a really wonderful uh, synergy Mm -hmm. there. It was a great moment. But why did I apply? I didn't just apply because of her post, but because this whole year doing Cold Mountain, reviving Family Secrets for its staged version, which was really a great evolution of that, I also did a world premiere of Eric Schwartz's new music to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is a German expressionist film that made its debut in 1920. <laughs> so it was an accompanying an accompaniment to the film. And I was doing all this new music and loving it. And you you don't get to talk to Mozart. Mm. You do through the score, but you don't get to say, what did you really mean by this? Uh, So the process of working with new living composers on new music is fascinating, fun. I love working on my voice in an extended way. You're singing your scales and you develop this sound for opera, which I've developed and I love feels like a very powerful resource. But there are a lot of deeper resources in my singing voice that I don't know about even yet. And some composers are calling on me to do some really crazy things this summer, and I'm excited about them. (laughs) What is an example of that? Oh, so an example is a composer named Kate Soper. She is at Smith College and is a living composer, obviously. She's composed a piece called Cipher that I was assigned, and it's for violin and soprano. One of the first things that's really interesting about it is that I actually get to touch my partner's violin and get in there and put my fingers on it and play stuff, which I've never done. I would never deign to reach over and touch (laughs) probably a priceless instrument. Um, So I'll be working with my uh, violinist on that and learning something about that instrument. Kate Soper has the soprano using their tongue and a breathy quality, to start out that piece with an unintelligibility, which as a singer, you're always working on diction and mm. intelligibility and make sure that people understand every single word. And she has this technique that I'm using to kind of emerge and reemerge out of and into intelligible language. Partially, I think, as a joke, you know, it's really fun to play around with with that stream, uh, it's like a fish coming out of the water. There it is. Oh, mm-hmm. no, it's going back in. So it sounds a little like this. I because <laughs> I wanted to be explicit. And that sentence is, I came to language because I wanted to be explicit. Um, and it goes on from there. But there's a sort of cartoony quality to the voice and then going into a more you know uh, accessible normal quality to the singing then going back into that cartoony voice and it's a little ridiculous and fun and certainly new for me
0: so does this does the summer lab work in this way people are accepted as fellows and then i know that you are bringing family secrets with you but are you also assigned to work with other Fellows and composers. How does that work? Yeah,
1: so we do have repertoire assignments that have been coming through my inbox. This Kate Soper piece is one of them. So I'll be partnered up with a violinist. I'm also doing another piece for soprano and violin. And then a composer who's coming to the group, Oliver Lewin, is writing a new piece for the lab. And let me see if I can remember the instrumentation it's two sopranos, saxophone, percussion and i'm even playing some percussion. So that's the the 8th blackbird ensemble or the powers that be have decided to construct an ensemble. Give it to Oliver, he's composing for us and then we've gotten the music and now we're going to be putting that together on our own before the lab and then coming together and working on it as an ensemble for the, as you said, the cumulative performance at the end. And I am bringing one piece from Family Secrets. It won't be the whole thing because it's a 45 minute piece. And there's obviously with I think 25 fellows, a lot of music to cover, but there'll be opportunities almost every night to perform at salon concert. Um, apparently from five to six every day, we have an opportunity to show the work that's either in process or our favorite party piece, or it's kind of a free form hour to show what we're doing along the way. There are, practice blocks that are happening throughout the day with the ensemble for yourself. So there's a schedule to the way that the day will run, but the outcome is going to be an amalgamation of all of these pieces.
0: In addition to learning this new music and stretching yourself artistically, are there other things that you're looking for from this summer that you hope to to have? Mm -hmm.
1: This summer is... Certainly, a vocal expansion for me, and that's and musical um education for me. But also, I think as an ensemble, eighth Blackbird intrigues me because they are so innovative in the theatrics in their performances. They memorize everything they do. and they get up and stand up and move and act. They confront the dramatic aspect of music making in a way that opera singers usually are really comfortable with, but that I admire a lot from musicians. I like that. I want to learn about their ideas behind that and how they choose pieces, how they have come together over all these years to be advocates for new music how do they choose composers for projects that they might see that they want to do? Or are they also leaving it up to the composer to create something? You know, that's that's a sort of mystical part of the process to me. I had this brainchild with family secrets. So I knew what, to an extent, what my outcome was going to sort of look like. And of course it evolved. But it still retained my vision. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, you have a composer whose work you like and you say, here, write for this ensemble. Well, what does that look like? Is it just their um, envisioning of that? And then also how you get into this new music circuit. There's a big world of new music out there. Some of it, I'll admit, I'm not a huge fan of, even though I'm very interested in it. Some music that comes out, I'm, you know, I can take it or leave it. Other music I'm super excited about. So how do you curate, What? how do you create a curatorial vision for your own path in new music? Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things I want to get out of this.
0: I imagine also how do you curate a vision for new music while retaining the pieces that you like from the classical world so how do do you carry all of that forward in a way that feels authentic to you
1: right right i i struggle with that a lot not maybe struggle isn't the right word but i certainly don't want to abandon my if you can say quote classical side of singing um i'm doing I still want to do opera. I still want to do concerts. I'm doing some early music, curating my own career without getting scattered, remaining versatile, not scattered. Mm. That's kind of a a place where I am right now because there is inspiration in a lot of different zones.
0: So in talking about kind of the life cycle of a piece, especially of a new piece, I am curious about when you when you staged Family Secrets three mm-hmm. years after the concert version, why did you decide to do that? You you talked a little bit about the theatricality of 8th Blackbird, the theatricality of that opera singers kind of move in. Um, but how, how do you approach that with a chamber ensemble piece? That's a great question. Um, the original
1: goal of Family Secrets, I think, was sort of a song cycle, a chamber music song cycle, which it still exists as. It quickly revealed itself as less of a mosaic of different secrets that were disconnected and more that the pieces and their inhabitants were very connected. Dan said this very well. He said it was clear that even though all of these writers know each other in Hillsborough, that the people that inhabit their writings also know Mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly what he says in one of his composer's notes. And that was really fun to play around with. The piece is scored for soprano and narrator. So there are two women on stage. And I just felt that it had merit for being a staged work it's still part song cycle it's still part chamber opera but it's like seven dramatic portraits and the score threads all of those themes together and so when i approached north carolina opera with it i said this is going to be different it's not a through line narrative but I think it's clear that everyone is dramatically connected. So, the big glue that brought that together was Francesca Talenti. She put her hat in to do projection design, which, when we originally did the concert version, we used projections. The photography was from Elizabeth Matheson. She's also from Hillsborough, continuing the theme. Her work is so beautiful. You can see some of her work in the North Carolina Museum of Art. The photos that we used of hers are interiors and some exteriors of houses and rooms, and she really elicits a, a feeling of drama and, and also a darkness, a sort of feeling that something has happened in these rooms. So we used her work in the first version, and Francesca, did more with the projections to enliven them and to move them more. So that created a really wonderful, dramatic thread that worked with us as moving people on Mm -hmm. stage. We also used an art collection that is a private collection in Hillsborough of American folk art buildings. Stephen Burke and Randy Campbell have collected over 1,200 of them. And actually on the front cover of the News and Observer Today is an article about this collection. Oh, wow. There's a, a documentary film by Marcia Gordon and Lewis Cherry that's premiering at Longleaf Film Festival this Friday. Probably by the time the podcast comes out, it might be past, but the documentary is called Rendered Small. And we used items from their collection to populate the stage and create the set. Because of it being a private collection and it's rather complicated to move a lot of art around, that aspect of it may or may not travel with the piece as we attempt to take it further. Mm-hmm. But it is and was a fantastic element to support the fact that these secrets were all in different houses
0: or different spaces. Mm-hmm. It also plays really interestingly with size and perspective scale. by having yeah and scale exactly. I love the thought of having those on stage with the projections and with the people and yes, these, these, that's really compelling.
1: Yeah, the projections sort of acted as the um, mod, uh, the mode of transportation inside these houses. You know, they weren't the actual
0: rooms, but they felt like they could be right. So, what is next for Family Secrets?
1: That's a really good question. I'm um, working on that. Francesca and I have been putting together a website to share with presenters or potential presenters to give it sort of a pitch. And we're working on the next place. I want to take it to 8th Blackbird, see what they think about the piece, see what ideas they may have with thoughts of their resources. Not that I'm trying to you know, right on coattails there, but I, I think that they have the connections to say this would work here. Mm-hmm. This wouldn't work here. So soundboarding some of that with them because it is hard. You create this thing, it has such a root in this area, but it's also a universal piece. This town is not just about Hillsboro. The these secrets don't just live in Hillsborough. It's an effective piece because it could be anywhere that's about people. It's about humanity. It's about how we forgive each other, how we all have loss, Mm -hmm. how we all have uh, something that we're carrying with us. And I want to translate that universality out to other presenting organizations who may look at it and say, well, that's a nice local piece but it's much more than that. Right. So I'm working on constructing how to
0: how to present that to the next phase of presenters. It strikes me that there's something really interesting about a quote local piece that you know, for people who are local, they have a special relationship with that piece of art. But when you take the art elsewhere, it is also a way for people to access what you're calling the universality of the story because there's not that, there's not the same kind of exposure about like this is about us and Or is it about us? So people aren't approaching the work Mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. They're approaching it as a story about somewhere else. And then the surprise is, oh, it's not about somewhere else. It's about here. It's about us. And so somehow the walls come down. It it allows people to access that because they're not operating from a defensive position. Precisely. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. I thought it was interesting. One comment
1: after the piece said, someone said to me, well, I could just hear this with different accents. You could have a British actress, you know, doing the narrator role. You could have someone from New York. You can put it in the place where it is. We happen to have Jane Holding, who is phenomenal, and I would never want to replace her. But she, she does have a magnificent southern drawl that speaks to the south of the piece. So there's an innate sense that it lives here in the south when you hear that particular accent. But it was really fun to hear that comment and I thought, that's brilliant. You know, if it does go somewhere else, you can sort of change a sense of it doesn't have to be about accents, but just the feeling that it's not only a southern piece, it's it's gonna live wherever it is. Right. Being presented. Beyond the summer, what's next for you? Well, I'm working right now on a series of programs for the coming year, some of which I can't really divulge because there are dates and things hanging in the air. But one is a project celebrating the musical settings of the poet Jeffrey Beam. Jeffrey is also from Hillsborough and participated in Family Secrets, but he happens to be one of the writers whose words have been set more often to music. The composer Lee Hoybe said five poems of his called The Life of the Bee. They're all about bees and mm-hmm. they have a Fun buzzing quality to them. Stephen Serpa, who is finishing his doctorate at UT Austin in composition, set several pieces—not all vocal—but I think three or four pieces that were inspired by Jeffrey's poetry. One that is vocal is called "The Creatures," and again, that's an interdisciplinary collaboration with Ippy Patterson, who's an artist from Hillsboro. She illustrated Jeffrey's book, An Elizabethan Bestiary. It's a reduction of or sort of a distillation of these big stories about mystical beasts into poetic form. And then she did the illustrations and Stephen set um, Stephen Serpa set those to music. And so I'm working on trying to integrate a big program of settings of Jeffrey's pieces and get that done somehow. They're wonderful. There are a couple others. So that's one goal. Adhering to my wanting to celebrate people of this place.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for this conversation. I could talk to you for hours. I love the way that you work collaboratively with other artists and your sense of imagination and adventure and your generous spirit. And I'm, I can't wait to see what's next to hear what's next <laughs> for you. Thank
1: you so, so much. It was a pleasure talking to you and I appreciate the invitation.
0: Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. You can support the podcast via our Patreon page, patreon.com slash We are recording today in Shadowbox Studio in Durham, North Carolina. You can check them out online at shadowboxstudio.org. Thanks so much, Andrea. And we're out.